Welcome to the show. I'm Greg McEwen, and I'm your host for the What's Essential podcast. There are lots of shows on how to improve, on how to become successful, but there is only one on what to do once you are. This is essential because success can be a catalyst for failure, especially if it leads to the undisciplined pursuit of more. This show is about how to become successful at success. It's for high performers who are on the edge of exhaustion, solving problems completely before they even arise. It's about turning tedious tasks into joyful rituals. It's about simplifying your processes and making your most essential activities the easiest ones. So if you're a driven, hardworking, productive person who is running out of space but still wants to make a higher contribution effortlessly, the What's Essential podcast is designed especially for you. So let's begin. My guest today is Barry Eggers, venture capitalist and Silicon Valley pioneer with a long history in its tech and venture scene. He's a founding partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners, one of the premier funds on, you know, really from the last decade, home run investments, including Snapchat, Affirm, MuleSoft, uh, Nutanix, and Stitch Fix. But prior to Lightspeed, Barry was at Cisco Systems, establishing several of the company's largest distribution channels and developing the initial merger and acquisition process. More recently, he was the former chairman of the National Venture Capital Association, where he successfully guided the NVCA and its members through the pandemic, set up the VC community to lead the recovery. Barry has been named multiple times to the Forbes Midas list of top venture capital investors, meaning that everything he touches turns to gold. He holds a BA in economics and business from UCLA and an MBA from Stanford University. I own alma mater. You can find Barry on LinkedIn and Twitter at Barry Eggers, B-A-R-R-Y-E-G-G-E-R-S, or through lsvp.com forward slash team forward slash Barry dash Eggers. Barry, welcome to the What's Essential podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I've enjoyed reading your book. Well, I appreciate you reading that. I'm glad for that. And maybe we'll get onto some of those themes. But you said something just before we went live. You were talking about having done some personal experiments with when you are most what, most energized. How did you how did you put that? In reading your book, I was struck by the fact that here's someone who's writing a book on stuff I've been trying to figure out for 58 years. Huh. And I'm sort of a, I guess I, I would call myself an efficiency junkie mm. because I'm always trying to figure out how to do things better and faster at the same time. That's taken me on this journey of how I sort of manage my, my day-to-day execution or action items, whatever you want to call it, to a place more recently where I've you know, understood that, you know, as you get older, your brain isn't always, you know, clicking on all cylinders. And so what can you do to have good brain days versus bad brain days? And and maybe I guess you could have it when you're young too, but it just didn't seem to be so obvious to me back then. So I do spend time thinking about the things I do that make my brain sharper, 
make me more articulate, creative, all those kind of things, and try to do it more, right? Obviously, getting a lot of sleep. That's job one, plenty of sleep. I find in the morning that if I fast in the morning, I'm really a lot sharper if I fast than if I eat a big breakfast. It's also diet and the stuff you eat. It's how you think about stuff. And so I'd love to see your next book address sort of brain health and how to be at peak performance. Because I think when you, when you are at peak performance, you do things a lot more efficiently. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you a hundred percent on that. Uh, I mean, just one point of overlap. You don't call a company light speed without thinking about it. That's what you called it because presumably in working with Silicon Valley companies where speed is literally a competitive advantage, even a, a little faster than your competitor can make a huge difference uh, in your innovation cycle. So I, I assume that you know that's why you've called it light speed. Well, actually, why don't you weigh in on that? Turns out it was a company in our portfolio that we sold to Cisco and we were kind of trying to come up with a name and we hired a marketing consultant and they, they came up with all these fancy names and this was in 2000 and none of them we really liked. And I just said, well, we had this company called Lightspeed and we just sold it to Cisco and they're not going to use the name. So why don't, why don't we use Lightspeed? It had multiple connotations, one of which being we were doing some investing in the optical space, but more importantly, it was about how we, we prided ourselves in moving fast. And we are tagline back then was think big, move fast. Yeah, think big, move fast. And just building on that, I mean, the whole theme within, within effortless on the effortless state is really about this, is about how your, your brain gets so cluttered, it starts to run slow, just like a machine that has suddenly, you know, all of this browsing data that slows down the processing speed. Similarly, our brains get so cluttered, cluttered with bad paradigms, uh, outdated assumptions, cluttered with exhaustion, cluttered with emotional scar tissue from grudges that we hold. All of these things get in the way, slow us down. Take the mental acuity that we have and use it on non-essential activity and so my primary argument in effortless is if you can remove that clutter, then you're going to run much faster. Uh, you're going to be able to actually both items of your tagline. You're going to be able to think bigger and move faster. Tell me a little about your journey. Give me like the Reader's Digest version of how you came to do what you do and be where you are. Start from the beginning, if you don't mind, but just a full but quick overview. Born and raised in California. I'm a fourth generation Californian. There aren't many of us here. And I grew up playing water polo. I went to UCLA to play water polo there, and I was an econ major. I really wanted to be back in the Bay Area, and, and tech had really started to boom. And I figured, well, I need to get into tech. So took a tech job and learned how to talk tech, right, as an econ major, figure out how it works and all that kind of stuff. And that led me then to say, well, if I want to take the next step, I ought to go get an MBA. So I went and applied to Stanford and, and some other places and got in and went back and got my MBA at Stanford. And I joined Cisco out of business school. It was growing so fast. It was a different job every year, which for me was excellent. 
I really like the variety. And I'd never thought about venture capital. I didn't take the class in the GSB at the business school at Sanford. And um, one of my classmates called me and said, hey, have you ever thought about venture capital? And I said, I haven't, but I know that I, I enjoyed Cisco a lot more at 400 people than I did at 12,000. So tell me more about venture capital. And I went to hear more. And after about six months, decided it was the right thing to do was to go into the venture capital industry in January of 97, which happened to be sort of the beginning of that bull market, if you will, sort of the bubble, as we used to call it. And been there 25 years. Started Lightspeed in 2000. One of the interesting things in your bio is you lead with this, that whatever else I'm doing, whatever I'm doing, I'm creating leverage for my founders. And that's a word that means a lot to me. Uh, and I explore in Effortless a whole final section on it, the power of leverage, the importance of it. C could you just speak to this for a while? Like, why do you see your role as maybe primarily around creating leverage for your founders? Your book, Effortless, is, seems to be all about how do you make yourself more efficient? And when you're a VC, you're, you're investing in a company you're usually sitting on the board and you're working with the team and trying to help them. Problem is, I think when you're early on in your career, you can't tell the difference between overhead and leverage. That is, overhead is, I'm making an introduction, I'm creating work for you that's not going to actually impact the company in a positive way. Whereas leverage is, I'm doing something that's going to help you do what you need to do faster and it's going to impact the company took me a long time to figure that out. Um, but the way you figure it out is you got to put yourself into the CEO's shoes and figure out what they're doing day to day, and what their routine is, and how do you help them do something faster? That's so interesting. The, the before and after is interesting to me. In the first instance, you're trying to create value. So it's not a motives problem, but somehow what you are doing is, is not relevant to them. So your efforts come with a bit of a tax. You know, they look at what you're doing, they're like, well, that's not really so useful to me. So they devalue your work is not as valued, but also what you're doing can actually interrupt them, making them a little slower, even though your intent is good. You said the distinction, the difference, I mean, you didn't use the word, but it's, it's empathy. It's listening. It's really genuinely understanding, not just in an emotional sense of feeling their world, but it's like really genuinely understanding where they are, what they're doing, what they're trying to accomplish. Did I did I get it right? Yeah, that's that's correct. And and I think when you're a younger VC, it's uh, it's hard to figure out what questions to ask to hear that. And, and sometimes a lot of CEOs just won't talk about, you know, what they do day to day and what really is on their mind. You have to give them a safe place to do it. Um, and as a VC, you can introduce them to people and they feel compelled to have to go after those introductions. And, and so you, you can be in a place where you're providing overhead to a management team or a CEO. And so, you know, I, I find that just sort of listening sometimes the most, most, Leverage I can give someone sometimes is just being on a phone call with them and basically listening the whole time, right? And and telling them what they're telling me or sort of rephrasing and summarizing what they're telling me. So it's almost like being a sounding board and 
people should understand that being a CEO of a private company is probably one of the loneliest jobs out there. There's really no one to talk to. And if you're talking to your investors and your board, you, ha- you might feel a little bit vulnerable in doing that. So you have to give them a really safe place to talk and then just listen. I'm going to be Captain Obvious for a second. Why is it so important to get them to be willing to share with you so that you really understand what their real world is? Why does that matter so much? Well, because, I mean, I, I, I work across, you know, a venture capitalist will work across, call it eight to 15 companies. I'm, I'm eight right now. I sit on eight boards, seven boards, sorry. And I work with another company. But, and so, you know, they're in this thing day to day. They're in this thing 24 by seven, right? I talk to them maybe once or twice a week. I parachute in, you know, to a board meeting, you know, every four or six weeks. And I'm trying to be able to help them. But the only way I can help them if I know what's on their mind and what's going on. And so um, it's really hard to get them to say, I've been work, you know, I've been working 24 by seven days over the last week before I've, you know, last time I talked to you. And I'm going to try to condense what's happened in that period into a 30 minute conversation. So how do we do that? Right. And that's, that's where you just have to, it takes a lot of practice. You're still not going to know some things and there's still going to be some things they're probably not going to want to talk to you about yet, but that's where the trust factor is really important. How long did it take you to transition from a role of, Hey, I'm going to try and add value but maybe really just be adding overhead versus I'm really going to spend the time listening, understanding, identifying at deeper and deeper levels what really is essential. What was the, what was the length of journey? You know, I think it's um, a realization that in our business, sometimes the best CEOs need the least amount of help or the best companies need the least amount of help. So you end up spending a lot of time helping companies that need it. That, that's not that much fun, by the way, but sometimes a l- doing less for a company is more, right? Just getting out of the way, figuring out what are the very, very top priorities, helping there and not feeling like you got to spend as much time with that company because things are going well as another company. I don't know when the point I realized that, but I think you just look around and you look at the the CEOs that have you know been really successful that we've worked with, and a lot of them just you know pretty self sufficient CEOs, and you can just do little things to help them along the way, but you don't have to engage with them a lot. This episode is sponsored by Shopify, selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing, however you. Cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, 
whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. What I heard you just say was that you realized that creating value for a highly competent CEO looks different than creating value as a first line employee or as a first time manager or as even a manager of managers. Like it looks different as you go up the ladder. And it takes a certain kind of experience and then confidence, I think, to realize, oh, my value isn't created by how many things I do for this person for how often I'm on their calendar, for how often I'm sending them an introduction. Like I can create genuine value without doing any of those things. The best people don't even want me to do any of those things. They want me to create space, listen, help them to be able to get clear themselves on what their top problems are, because in the speed of their work, that may not be completely clear to them. And you discovered that there was a different way to create value than earlier in your career. That's a good summary of it. I think when, when you get to that place with someone you're working with, a CEO or management team, they will ask you for what they need. And you sort of have that understanding that just ask. When you need something, just ask. And it doesn't come very often, but when it does, you know, this is something important. Let's figure out how to get it done. And that's a good place to be, I think, in a relationship between an investor and an operating executive. We've been talking about leverage in a particular way, how you create leverage for your investor, well, for your portfolio CEOs. But there's something you just said there that looks at the other side of leverage, which is that you said when you're working with the, the highest performing CEOs, the people that you've had the most success with, you've actually spent less time. There's less drama. There's less intervention. And it reminds me of Warren Buffett, who, who said a few counterintuitive things around this. Here we have one of the most successful investors in history, um, certainly in the world today. And he says these things like, our investment strategy borders on lethargy. He says, I'm not looking for seven-foot fences I can leap over to be successful. I'm looking for one-foot fences I can step over. And so he really is basically saying, I want to find the managers of 
the world-class managers who are already running world-class ventures. And I, I want to trust them. You know, I want to, I want to invest in people I trust and then I trust them completely. All of that feels similar to what you've just described. Uh, and I wonder what is the criteria that you have learned over time for finding these high trust CEOs, the ones that really are so competent and, and you're able to work with them and trust them in this way. What's the criteria that you now look for? You know, the, the challenge is that we all want to work with people that we think we can help, right? And so sometimes when you're working at a company, you have a CEO asking you a lot of questions and using your experience to be helpful. And you're drawn to that. You say, well, I'm, maybe I should be working with this CEO. I want to invest in them. And we have a great, great chemistry, right? I have a lot to bring to the table. But yet, yet there might be actually adverse selection with that. And sometimes you have the CEOs that, you know, sort of like, hey, they pitch you and they don't really have a lot of follow-up. They don't really ask for anything from you. And you're thinking, well, I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to be value-add. Well, the job is not to be value-add. The job is to pick the best CEOs and companies. And like I say, the best CEOs and companies tend to not use or need your help as much. We can almost tell which companies are going to be successful very early on by how much effort you have to put into helping them. Now, we do stuff like customer introductions and stuff like that for everybody, and that's across the board. But I'm talking about you know the day-to-day -day operational stuff, the strategic stuff, decisions, you know, hiring. Sometimes CEOs are really good just in identifying the people they want to hire and bringing them in, and you get to see them towards the end of the process, and that's great. Other CEOs want you involved right from the beginning and, you know, you're an integral part of the process. And the second one feels better, but the first one yields better results. Yeah, it's really interesting what you said a second ago about there being a possibly adverse selection relationship between the people that kind of make you feel good because you're needed they want to ask you, they want to know what you know and, and gather that from you. You feel useful. But actually to learn over time, that is a bit of a red flag because what you really want is for them to know how to go through that process individually with their own team, have that competence and to know how best to utilize you. But it takes, by the sound of it, a sort of discipline, a maturity, really, to go, it doesn't matter whether I feel useful, it's whether I am useful that matters. And we all want to feel useful. And I think that, I think there's a moment in a lot of young venture capitalists' lives when they realize that they just had a great outcome, but they didn't really do much to help the company. But that's okay, <laughs> you know, because the great outcome, for their investors, shareholders, is what's important. I think there's something here well beyond Silicon Valley and investor relationships and you know the, the specific situation that's really portable. An example that comes to mind is someone, a friend of mine, 
who, after reading Essentialism, the book I wrote before Effortless, one of his points of feedback, plenty of things he liked, but one of the things that he wasn't in love with was the idea of effortless because he said, well, I don't want my job to be effortless. You know, he's like, if, if I get my job to be effortless, this is his language where he said, then a monkey could do my job. I, I don't want that. And I thought that was a really interesting observation, maybe a little revealing even, because it, it, it's saying my job needs to be hard because then I'm useful, then I'm needed, rather than, well, no, of course you want the job to eventually become effortless. So that's how you can then operate at the next level of contribution. You can do something else. You can work on the business in a different way, or you can move on to a new business at a new stand, you know, a new level of contribution. <laughs> I, I obviously didn't follow his advice because I doubled down on and wrote a book <laughs> on that precise word and subject. And you can substitute the term, you know, can be done by a monkey to it can be done by a, a robot or a computer. That's it precisely, isn't it? In fact, in venture capital, you know, there's a lot of data science happening in venture capital and a lot of the signals of what is a good company, you know, is done by the data scientists, by the computers, not by individuals. And I think there's going to come a time when you might be able to replace venture capitalists with computers, at least to identify which companies to invest in and how much to invest. And then if you're not adding value a lot after you make the investment, well, who can be a venture capitalist? Anyone can be a venture capitalist then in that case. So I agree that everything doesn't have to be effort you know, full of effort, that there are smart ways to do things and there are ways that just make you feel good, but don't produce the results. Well, and I think this is the idea here is the difference between being useful and feeling useful. Those are two different sensations, two different experiences. And I can see parents sometimes who like the feeling of being needed of having their children come to them. Oh, how do I do this? And, oh, I've got this problem. And, and, oh, I need to be sort of rescued. And in that moment, a parent feels useful. But that's not the same as being useful. Being useful might be really teaching your children initiative and really putting it back on them and creating uh, accountability so that they are responsible for more and more over time. Uh, again, doesn't necessarily feel that great at first, especially if you have a lot of self-worth tied up in feeling useful. Barry, what question did you hope I wouldn't ask today? Hope oh, you wouldn't ask. Oh boy. First thought. <sighs> do you, do you ever have regrets about your career choices? Mm. I'll answer it too. I have enjoyed my career. I still have some years left, despite I've been doing it for a long time, but, and it's been very rewarding in many, many ways. But I think as you get older, you, you then think back on what, what really was I made to do here? And I would say that I love venture capital, but I don't feel like I get to use the creative side of myself and I, I thirst for that. So more recently, I've been trying to use the creative side more, learning how to play the guitar, doing some writing, you know, stuff like that, that really allows me to sort of exercise creativity, but 
you know, and, and you, you always sort of think back and say, well, gee, what, what could I have been that might've been more fun and rewarding? Because at the end of the day, that's how you spend your days, you know, is, is at work, but it's, it's maybe just a period of my life. I'm just sort of going through and thinking about it. You know, everyone looks mm-hmm. at you and say, wow, you've had this great successful career. Yeah. It's been wonderful. But, you know, was it really what I was meant to, to do? I never took the venture capital class in school, but I ended up doing it. So. You're not complaining when you say it, but you are reflecting. It reminds me of a phrase from the Quakers, which is, let your life speak. And that's what I think you're doing. You're looking at the... I think you're saying something. You're saying, I think I didn't let my life speak fully. You're not complaining about the experience you've had. You're not, you're not bemoaning the success and the successes. But you're acknowledging or sensing that there was something more that didn't get full voice or hasn't yet. Absolutely. It's not a regret. It's just a, hey, there might have been some other stuff that I could have done with my life that might have been more interesting or, or, or whatever, more u- using my creativity. And, and you feel a little bit of a void, but you know, you, very few people have five or six careers. I've had one. So if I could be a professional baseball player, I'd, I'd probably want to do it, but I'm a little old right now. I could write <laughs> movies or produce movies or or be a comedian. I'd probably want to do that too. Play the instruments and have people come listen to me to you know playing music. I'd probably want to do that too. But um, I took a different path in life, and that's fine. It's great. I have no regret. And I think it's okay to think that yep. there might have been other paths that might have been really rewarding too. And that's that's nice that you have multiple options. Well, absolutely. And, and you're coming at it from a, from a safe and secure place because you say, well, things have been fantastic and I can sense something. I can sense, you know, maybe there was a different path or maybe there is something in me that still needs expression. Uh, but you said it a particular way, or, or I heard it a particular way, which is not just was there another path. Of course, there were other paths. We've made other choices. There's an almost infinite number of choices and paths and trade-offs we can make. What the sense is, is have I done what I came here to do? It's a mission question rather than a strictly career question, if I'm hearing it right. Um, if you could just do anything, right? You wave the magic wand. You can, you can do what you want now. You would do what? All jobs pay the same in this make-believe. Yeah. I don't think I know the answer to that, but... You have to choose it in the next 10 seconds anyway. So with the current level of information, 10 seconds, you've got nine. I'd like to, eight, I'd like to be a general, seven, general manager six, in a NFL five, football team. Four. Well, that is interesting. Three, two, one, and you got that. Does that surprise you when you hear that answer? When you had to grab one? and just make a decision on it? Are you surprised by your answer? Um, maybe a little bit, because I think, I, you know, why didn't I say, you know, write movies, or why didn't I say play music? But 
I've always thought about the way I am with people in venture capital and that been a football fan forever. Unfortunately, I'm a Raider fan, so I've had 20 years of misery <laughs> after I grew up with a bunch of Super Bowls. So, But I'm still a Raider fan. I love being able to sort of talk about football, and but there's that human side of it, the chemistry of when a team comes together. And you look at something like Tampa Bay where that chemistry comes together and they, they go farther than anybody else. I, I just like to experience it, sort of the EQ part of football, and I'm big on EQ. So maybe that's why I said it. Mm-hmm. Well, and and just coming full circle with it, some of these more experienced leadership lessons, counterintuitive lessons, like it's important to be useful, not to feel useful, surely can apply to a general manager uh, of a major sports franchise. Also, really learning how to listen and create safety for a coach, for example, who is also in a lonely position trying to make decisions that are high stakes and many outside of their own control. I mean, all those sort of nuanced lessons seem potentially relevant in the ways that we've described, portable lessons. Barry, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today, uh, to taking this journey, some of it down memory lane and then evaluating and even now looking into the future and what is possible. Uh, I think the final thing I want to say is if dreaming isn't possible for you in a big and bold way, who is it possible for? To remember that just because somebody's developed competency in one area doesn't mean that they can't now apply that somewhere else, go after something else bold. Uh, to, to me, is, um, would, be, would be quite a discouraging idea. And to believe, as um, the mentor uh, to me used to say, we've got to live life in crescendo, to believe that our greatest contribution always lies ahead of us, not behind us. Barry, give us the final word. I've enjoyed the conversation. It took me on a journey I did not expect. And I, I learned a lot about myself in an hour's worth of time. So I really appreciate you uh, guiding me through that. And I wish we could have more sessions. <laughs> well, I'm sure, I'm sure we can make that possible. <laughs> Barry, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, that is a, a great way to simply say uh, welcome to the What's Essential podcast. And also thank you for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists, one and all, we've come to that moment again, the end of the show. Thank you really sincerely for listening. It's been amazing to see what's happened already with this show. The show has become, in fact, the top 3% of podcasts globally within just the first five months of its launch. And that's because of you. You have made this special. And I want to end, as I always do, reminding you that if you don't do anything else, just ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. 
I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.